In Jesus' name, amen. So there we go. Amen. Hello and welcome. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. If you uh, are blessed by our worship team, I would love to just, you know, bully you into some sort of public, like, show of affection right now, but that doesn't really mean much. You kind of feel obligated. You're in the dark. Who knows if you mean it? After the service, if you feel blessed by our, our worship team, please go up and tell them so. Please communicate how much of a blessing it is to have people lead you in worship. Happy Father's Day to the dads, to the moms. You know, I got a little, I got a little something I got to say. We usually joke that, you know, Mother's Day, the numbers go up on Sunday, Father's Day, you know, maybe a little bit more space on a Sunday, and it's always just another jab at the dads. But I think we've done it too many years, and the moms are getting a little mean about it. I think the moms walk around here with their heads held high, they're being a little rude. Let's just look at the numbers a little bit, okay? First, there's people here. Okay, and two, we didn't do a baby dedication today. You want to goose numbers? Have a baby dedication. (laughs) Maybe it's not just the withering guilt a mom can lay on the family to get them to church. Dads, great job. Yeah, you can do better. Please do better. But great job. Use that influence. Get your family to church. Because, to make the (laughs) awkward turn towards seriousness, uh, you you need us. You need this. Families, you need this. The things that we're talking about in First Peter are drastic. You know, it's not like bunnies and marshmallows. It's, it's fire. It's difficulty. This is not an easy world. Christianity is not an easy path. You got to hold a lot in tension. The blessings that we have in Christ are so phenomenal. The the fellowship that we have in Christ, the support that we have, and that's the empowering that we have through the Holy Spirit. The things that God gives us are so phenomenal that it's hard to make the case about it being difficult. And yet, of course, it is difficult. We live in a rough world. We live in a world that you have to contest moment by moment. Not just vocally with your family, but in your own head, with your own thoughts. There's a great quote from a guy named Ed Shaw, who wrote a book about same-sex attraction from a Christian perspective. And he says, The great authority in the world we live in today is our personal happiness. If someone or something leads to unhappiness in our life, well, that must be wrong. If someone or something makes us happy, they or it must be right. And I bring up that quote and I bring up that author because it is, it's Pride Month, if you've not noticed. And that word bigotry, that means like an irrational hate for a group of people, gets thrown around a lot. As Christians, you are called to live as though what that quote says is not exactly true. At least if you say immediate personal happiness, because we believe that we are fighting for something that will make you gloriously, eternally happy. But in the short term, can't you see why people in the world would look at what we believe and say that it's wrong? 
that would feel that we have a certain amount of just hate or even disregard for people if we would presume to tell them that something that makes them happy is actually something that they shouldn't pursue? I get that. And yet we are called to live this very nuanced position of both disagreeing and showing love. Man, I hope you have lots of points of contact with people in that community. So much so that you're able to really show love and distinction. That it is possible to to love someone and disagree. And, And part of what makes it so difficult is not just the interpersonal sort of minefield. Part of what makes it so difficult is that in your heart you kind of agree with them. That you should be able to do whatever makes you happy. As defined by well, I want to argue against that this morning. I want to argue against it from 1 Peter, and I want to argue it in the way that 1 Peter does about the way we reset our thinking in this very difficult world, in this very difficult sort of mental climate that we've all inherited, both from our nature and our nurture. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. Let me just make plain what we've said many times in this book. You will, if you are a Christian following Christ your master, suffer. It's going to get difficult, and yet we're called to love and to live and to think like our master. We're called to imitate Christ and Peter and Paul and last week, Noah, you and I are called to live in this difficult world, embracing some of that suffering. If Christ suffered in the flesh, we have to prepare ourselves with the same way of thinking. If we will prepare ourselves mentally, if we will continue to take every thought captive, if we will continue to see God renew our mind. You can talk about it as faith, and I think that's appropriate, but some people have kind of broken that word's definition. If we will think, remember what we know to be true, then we're, our, whole, our whole Christian mission, our whole life gets flipped upside down, or, or maybe better said, right side up. And as Peter continues, he he teaches us a little bit more of how to do that. He continues by saying, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Let's talk about that for a second. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. He begins by talking about this suffering that we do as we follow Christ. And that suffering will lead to our um, gaining a little bit more motivation, gaining a little bit more of a reason to fight against sin. And when I say sin, I want you to see it in the the categories that he's put there. If you just read verse 3, you start thinking about sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. If you're me, that immediately just sort of imagine frat parties. I just sort of imagine Vegas. And then it becomes this category that's not really me. You know, of a Friday night, we have a game night, but it doesn't tend to devolve into anything that looks like this. I'm not 
sure that I'm in danger of accidentally falling into an orgy, is there then something in this for me? Well, yeah. That quote about you thinking that whatever makes you happy is is somehow justified, can I tell you that that's exactly what he's describing there? He's describing a headlong rush for pleasure that is disregarding God's structure, God's law, God's right to tell you what will actually give you pleasure, and with a capital P. When he talks about that, he then talks about how if we are suffering in the flesh, that it'll help us in our fight against sin. And and the Bible gives us all kinds of reasons to argue against that sort of proud other way of thinking that says, if it makes me happy, I can do it, I shall do it. The Bible gives us aesthetic reasons. I mean, it, it, it tells us that sin is ugly and is right. I don't know what you know about sin, but but if you've lived very long as a Christian, then you can start to understand God's perspective on how sin is incredibly enticing when you're in it. But when you're outside of it, when you're seeing it in somebody else's life, you can clearly see why it's something that you don't want, that you shouldn't want. And yet, What's crazy about it is that that ugliness of sin. You watch somebody else's life. You see somebody else's life fall apart in adultery. You don't often look at the partner that they, they left and look at the person that they went after and say, well, I get it. Usually if you see that, that train wreck, you're totally confused. Why would somebody do that? That's That's ugly. And yet for the person that's in it, that, that perversion is almost what draws you further in. And let's change from maybe your judgment of somebody else to your understanding yourself. Isn't it possible that you do something that you don't like, but you very much like? The book of Romans is this long book, and it's got all kinds of stuff in it, but there's a chapter right in the middle in Romans chapter 7 where Paul talks about what it feels like to both hate and love what God says he hates. One of the more perceptive spots, I think this is described by a guy named C.S. Lewis, and he says, it's idle to point out to the perverted man the horror of his perversion. While the fierce fit is on, that horror is the very spice of his craving. It's the ugliness itself that becomes, in the end, the goal of his lettery. Beauty has long since grown too weak, a stimulant. (gasps) If you don't follow that, throw it away. Don't worry about it. But what he's saying is it's possible. You look in the life of the addict, it's possible to see that they continue to choose something that we all know won't work. But the increasing high that they seek and the deadening ability to feel that high means that they continue to pursue something that's going to have these diminishing returns until what? The only way out is to choose some other pleasure, to walk away from that thing that they know will destroy them, even though they know they want it more than life itself. Man, sin is ugly. Sin is is painful relationally. It hurts those that you love and that love you. You can see this from petty all the way up. We kind of got to keep moving, so I'm going to move through some of these a little more quickly. Um, Sin, biblically, sin is something that's awful because of how it breaks things functionally. The Bible is very clear that, that you become like the idols that you worship. 
If you worship God, you, you gain more life, you gain more love, you gain more capacity, and you slowly start to resemble, you slowly start to reflect Him to the world. But if you worship something else, anything else the Bible describes as idols, then you begin to look like that thing that you worship. An idol, pictured by this Old Testament imagery of this sort of statue, is just a statue. Oh, and the prophets are so clear about how if you worship something that's deaf and dumb, you will become deaf and dumb. You worship something that's just blind wood, you become, you make yourself slowly blind. That sin has the ability to break the way that you perceive. 1 Peter 4 has one that's very practical, and it says that if you've suffered, you now have this reason, that much more of a reason to stop your sinning. And, and do you understand that concept of like you've already made the investment? Why walk away? This is a very practical kind of a reason. All those other reasons are still true. But this is saying if you've suffered in the flesh, why would you turn back to that thing that you know you hate? It's like, there's a couple of doctors at Hope Church, and they describe the process of going not only to medical school, but all the residency stuff and the stuff that follows after that before you finally become a real, like, on-your-own doctor, and, you know, you're just raking in the cash and respect. (laughs) Well, imagine getting to that finish line. They describe this. The, The people who realize it takes so much effort and so much just drivenness to get to the point of... But people who realize partway through that process, they don't want to be doctors anymore. Imagine that you've suffered, you've accumulated all of that student debt, you've gotten to that finish line, you're ready to get out there and like, you know, get the title, you know, you're able to describe yourself as Mr. and Dr. whatever, you know, or Dr. and Mrs. whatever. And then you walk away. You've already done the suffering. Why not keep going? I mean, that's a broken illustration, but that's what Peter's describing here. He's saying, like, if you've already had the suffering, if you've already begun to resist to the point of that pain, then why not ke- stay with it? Why not keep going? Why not understand that that, that headlong rush for pleasure that's described by verse 3 is never going to actually work, and instead we're going to continue to invest in what will actually work? We see that all over the place, and we respect it in other places. The runner who gives up all of these other pleasures in order to enjoy the higher pleasure, the greater pleasure of that disciplined pursuit of of whatever, attainment or joy even in the act of running itself, the, the scholar, the athlete, the musician, whatever, that lays down all of these other options in order to go hard after this one thing. If you've already spent the years, if you've already done the suffering, just stay with it. And then he moves into just a very prudent reason for change, because sin is going to lead to death. It doesn't just make your life a little harder, and gee, it'd be better without it. And sin is a poison that leads to death. You drive on 15, there's a new billboard campaign against drinking and driving, and it's got, like, I think it says, like, one more reason not to drink and drive or whatever, and it's got a skeleton's hand holding, uh, like, car keys. I guess the drinking and driving, you know, campaign is not about subtlety, right? (laughs) It's about punching you in the face. If you do this, you and other people will turn into skeletons. Do you understand the Bible is making the same proclamation? 
this sin is going to kill you. There is a judgment to come. He says in verse 4, with respect to this, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. The, the culture around you is surprised when you don't join them in the same pursuit of what is considered pleasure, what is considered happiness. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they may live in the spirit the way God does. Again, verse 6 there, it gets a little weird in our head if we're not careful with it, sort of the way that the last chapter did when we were talking about Noah and, and the spirit and Christ preaching to the spirits of destruction, but uh, spirits who are in prison. But what he's saying here is the same as there. The people who are now dead heard the gospel preached, and even though they are judged in the flesh, they're, they're dead the way that people all die, they are now, because they believed in the gospel, living in the Spirit the way that God does. There is a judgment that comes before God. You're going to have to have that judgment. You're going to have to stand that judgment. There's the ultimate judgment standing before him, but there's evidence of it all over the place where it says... Judge in the flesh the way people are. He's referencing there that everybody dies. You know, there's evidence of that all over the place. Do you remember the first time you looked at your hands and thought they were the hands of an old man? I mean, maybe it's, maybe it's just being a little dramatic, but I was like, man, these are not young man's hands anymore. There's evidence all around us that the judgment's coming. There's a way of thinking that tries to ignore that. There's a way of thinking that takes it into your calculations. And there's a gospel that we can believe. That though that judgment is coming, there's a way through that judgment where we can live. We'll talk about that more in just a second. He says in verse 7, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Do you see what he's saying? He's talking about, again, the way that we think, the way that we put all of this together, the way that we pierce through the lie that we have coming out of our heart and out of our culture all the time in order to remember what's true, even if it's painful, even if it means saying no to things that seem very pleasurable. We are self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Again, there's a part of you that wants to read that and say, okay, God doesn't listen to your prayers if you're sinful. Uh, what? If that's true, then you can never pray because you're always sinful. Or you're found in Christ, and of course you're able to pray because you have the righteousness of Christ. So what does this mean? Well, how do you know what to pray for if you're not thinking rightly? No, no, no. We're going to pray like those who understand both the disease and the cure. And then Peter kind of takes a turn and things start to get a little sweeter, even if they don't get easier. He says in verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Not only are you going to have to continue to, to fight for the way that you think, not only are you going to have to continue to remember both the holiness of God, the sinfulness of our culture, and that glorious gospel message that's good news in the midst of that dire situation, you're going to also have to love one another. Here's why I think this is sweet, even if we all understand how it's hard. He's describing what it's like 
to really be committed to a group of people. I understand we live in a very mobile culture and people are going to come and go and some of that's okay and some of that I want to argue against. What if you really did love and commit to the people around you? Man, I think so many times we live that kind of old school carnival life where you come in with flash, you come in with your kind of normal moves and gimmicks, people are attracted to whatever degree they're attracted, then they start to realize that it's all a scam, (laughs) and you got to pick up the carnival and move off to the next town where you can start the scam all over again. You have these relationships, you've got these reasons, you've got these angles, you've got these jokes that kind of make you palatable. And then it's not too long before you start seeing the warts in their life and they start seeing the warts in your life and you're like, I think we're good here. Let's go find greener pastures. The shenanigans have been revealed and the carnival has to roll in to the next town. That's not Christ. Yeah, we're going to be moving here, there, and whatever, and the Lord's going to be sending people all over the place, and you're going to have reasons why you have to go all over the place, but here or there or wherever, the command's the same, to know and to love one another. Yeah, that's going to require loving despite the things that you begin to see in them. Loving despite those broken set of behaviors that you have, that just sort of kamikaze relationships that you have over time. But committing to it and and describing yourself as loving one another, seeing the love that you have from Christ, it covers a multitude of sins. You're able to keep going. He also describes hospitality without grumbling. What's a good way to love one another? We've talked about this a couple of times. You've got to just act, and then slowly the emotions start to follow. Hospitality without grumbling is a great way to do it. Hospitality with grumbling seems like a great way to do it, but the grumbling kind of undercuts the hospitality, so don't do that. Hospitality without grumbling is to say, clean your house, cook a meal, clear a schedule, invite somebody over, and hospitality. And then at the end of the night... You're thinking to yourself, well, at least the house is clean. Well, not anymore. You're going to have to clean it again. And you're still going to have to not grumble. But in doing that, again, you're going to start to follow. Remember, the whole thing here, you're imitating Christ, the one who set that meal for you. His first miracle, again, what was it? It was providing the wine for the feast. Oh, man as we love, as we fight all this sin, as we get our thinking right, as we are hospitable, we serve. It says in verse 10, as each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Listen, all of this stuff comes back to that essential lie that we have in our own heart, in our own culture, which says... I'm really important. I know that I'm really important. Now, I've got to validate that importance and I've got to see other people validating that importance. And if that's the case, then you come into any situation and you say, okay, well, what are the possible jobs here? What are the possible titles here? I'm going to need the most important one because, of course, I'm very important. 
Well, do you see the lie there? Do you see how hard that would be to live that way? Constantly worried that maybe you're not as important as you think, constantly offended because other people aren't treating you as importantly as you think that you are, constantly slighted because you're not given the job that you know you should have. Well, what is Peter saying here? He's got a totally different understanding of who we are as people by saying, you're going to be given different gifts. Go and do the gift you're given. Why? Well, because who you are as a person, your value, your importance comes from your relationship with the Lord, not your function in the world. He's saying that God loves you and adopted you. How's that for important? You know, people don't see me. People aren't impressed by what I do in the church. Well, God sees it. I don't know. That's pretty important. That's pretty impressive. You're known by him. Who else do you need on that list? There is a gospel understanding that who we are as people comes from our relationship to God, not our function in the community. And so being given lots of different functions, we just go and we do them and we do them hard and we do them with joy. So much so, again, that we're ready. We're thinking, we're knowing what this world is. It's not perfect, but it's, it's what God has given us. It's fallen, and yet the gospel is bringing us back to him. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Remember, This difficulty is not a surprise. It's promised. Christ cried. Christians will cry. Do you understand that? The suffering is coming. We we can rejoice, though, in that as we are associated with Christ now, as we're filling up his sufferings now, as we stand with him and claim him now, one day... When that glory comes, when that final moment comes, when all things are made right, we stood with him now, he'll stand with us then. You claim Christ now, he claims you then. You deny Christ now. Again, the scripture is very clear that he denies you then. So, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Lots of little things are being said here. We're getting towards the end of a letter in the New Testament. The beginning of a letter in the New Testament tells you a lot of facts about the gospel. The end of a letter of the New Testament gives you a lot of information. They're shooting out all this stuff, just trying, hoping that maybe you won't screw this up. It's like your kid going on their first like big road trip or something, and you're, you're telling them, okay, uh, here we go. All right. Uh, don't go to these gas stations. You got to make sure that you stay in the light. You're going to call me every hour on the hour, right? Okay. Yeah, good. Okay. And don't, and you just start giving them all these rules like, please don't be an idiot. Please just don't screw everything up for yourself and me. That's kind of what you get this feel from these pastors is they're looking out in these little communities and they love them and they trust the Holy Spirit's capacity to finish the work that he began but also, okay, really, you got to love one another well. you got to show hospitality, but not with grumbling. And you got to make sure that you're, you see? So there's all these facts. There's all these things being thrown out. But I want you to take a moment and just look at how the whole passage is coming together. 
He's got this summary sentence where he just says, listen, if you're going to suffer according to God's will, entrust your soul to a faithful creator while doing good. The tone of all of this passage is not just a command. Think about that. Yeah, I know there's a lot of like commands in it, but he's also constantly describing reasons for those commands. He's also constantly describing your relationship to the one who gives you those commands. Try to build for a second what that relationship is between you and God based on this passage. It's not just commands. It doesn't look like those parts of Leviticus, which are just a bunch of thou shalt nots. It's got descriptions here. It's got descriptions of reasons, and it's got descriptions of your relationship to the person who is giving you these commands. He's clearly in authority, but he's also clearly in relationship with you. He's not a slave driver, but neither is he just sort of throwing out wise advice. What does this look like? What relationship do you know of where somebody loves you passionately? They've given you purpose. They've given you a name. They have a relationship with you. And they have authority over you. They give you guidance in your life. They protect you, but they also allow some stuff to come through to give you some sort of understanding of what the world's like and what you're going to need to be prepared. You understand, I hope, where I'm going with this. He's like a father. He's a good, good father. The Lord isn't just giving you these commands. He's inviting you into relationship with him. He's allowing some of this stuff to happen to you because he knows that for a little while, if necessary, you're going to be passed through this fiery trial. But when you come out the other side, there's a reason. There's a love that understands and allows to a certain extent. How can you trust that? If you go to the Old Testament, there's a book called Job. And at the end of the book, God confronts this guy who's had a terrible, terrible suffering and just says, I'm God. He doesn't tell Job why the suffering was allowed. He just tells Job, I'm God. You're not. And in a small way, it feels like what you tell your kids a lot. They're asking you all these questions, and eventually you just have to say, we're done here. Sit down. I'm driving. I'm dad. You're not. And in the, I think it's Job 41, he describes these two just sort of mythical beasts, these two sort of representations of the wild, untamable forces of nature, behemoth and leviathan. And he describes over and over again the massive, I mean, maybe go see, I haven't seen the new Jurassic Park, but maybe there's something in Jurassic Park that's going to show you a behemoth or a a leviathan. These things that can't be tamed, they can't be caught, they can't be killed, they run around and do whatever they want. Unless, of course, you're God. Man gets totally annihilated by these things, but God, he leads them around on a leash. They're so tame that he can have them do tricks for his girls. He's in total control of the uncontrollable evil forces in the world. He knows exactly what he's doing. How can you trust that? Well, you look to the Christ who suffered all 
with us suffered all of that chaos, all of that sin, all of that suffering on himself so that those who are found in him can be saved before this holy God, can actually say with Jesus, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Listen, I don't know what your relationship with your dad's like, but it doesn't really matter. It matters a ton, but it doesn't really matter on how you understand who this God is. He's a God who loves you and wants you. Won't you then think this way? Won't you then embrace even this suffering? Let's pray that we would. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I ask for your grace that we would take the things that Peter's telling us here in Peter chapter 4 and uh, believe them. Yeah, I mean, there's, it's heavy with things that we're supposed to do and not do, but the background of all of this is that this, this good Father is watching out for us, is loving us, is caring for us, is guiding us through all of these things, Lord. You are the Father who, who catches us in the midst of a nightmare and wakes us up. Lord, we choose these nightmares. We put ourselves in these crazy patterns of thought and belief, and yet, Father, you wake us up. I pray that you would, Lord, put your hand upon our heads, that you would call our attention up to the goodness and the blessing of who you are. Lord, we pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.